Uh, hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. Uh, it's Toby Miller here. I'm in a coffee shop in Portland called The Public Domain, chosen by my latest victim, my old friend and great esteemed colleague Dan Schiller. Dan, how are you? Very well, Toby. It's nice to see you here and this is a new experience for me, so I hope I can modulate, let's say, to the rhythms of it. Uh, well, at least according to my recording device, something is modulating to some rhythm very or Very good. Then, and we're, then, we're, then we're good. So, Dan, uh, last night I had the great pleasure of listening to you give the opening keynote to this television conference. You mentioned television at least one and a half times <laughs> in <laughs> your address. Three. Uh, it was a bu uh, an absolutely fantastic uh, address. And I, I wondered if maybe you could tell us what you're working on right now, because I assume it forms part of this, this sort of digital depression. Yes, notion. well that is what I'm working on. I've been, um, uh, it's got a certain uh, history as a project. Um, I started, uh, uh, for a long time I've been working on a project on the history of U.S. telecommunications, and it's kind of my albatross. I've been <laughs> working on it, you know, for really more years than I care to say. So I thought, well, I'm really going to get to it now and I'm finish it off and then it won't, it will never bother me again. I'm going to get it down and break its arm. But um, <laughs> what uh, what happened instead is that we had the stock market meltdown followed by everything that's uh, continued to occur. And so I began to think that I, very soon actually, uh, I needed to engage with this. And um, so the long story condensed, I've done a series of um, presentations, a couple of which have been published separately, um, from, from 2008 maybe forward, uh, that track what's been happening in the context of communications. And they have somewhat different titles, but they all are about the crisis. Um, so, and I've been able, able to give these in a variety of locations. The first time was in Brazil. The second, I think, was in uh, Pueblo, Mexico. Uh, there was one at Simon Fraser uh, up the coast, uh, University of Massachusetts, and so forth. So each time, uh, I've been really not doing top to bottom rewrites of these things. Mm. And this is the most recent of that. So what I'd like to do is to get off the treadmill of writing uh, you know, 5,000 word presentations, uh, which are very valuable and even, in fact, for me, uh, necessary for simply trying to decide what order of relationship is primary, what's what's crucial to look at, what's less so. Um, but it's 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 time to turn it into a book. So I'm I'm hoping to work on that over this coming summer, a short book, and then uh, get that out. And I think digital depression will continue to be the the title. And then I'll, I'll send it. This is not about uh, medicine. Uh, so, so that's what I'm working on. I, I will get back to the telecom history stuff, but um, and presumably, digital depression will be an important part of the telecom history book anyway. Well, it, it's a question of where you end it. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I had thought I would end the telecom history book uh, around the time that the internet emerged, because it's really an archival study going back uh, over a hundred years and talking about. Uh, telecom, if you can believe it, um, from below a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So it's not just policymakers. Some policymakers are in there, but it's also about uh, social struggles around telecommunications. That's the, that's the fulcrum. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
uh, but I think I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep these separate because, I mean, if I put another load onto that telecom history book, I, it's going to get me down and break my arm. <laughs> <laughs> You're in a constant mortal combat yeah. with this title. <laughs> so one of the things I enjoyed very much about your presentation last night was that you took us back to the days of the futurists, their halcyon days, which started before the early to mid-70s recession, but really took off with that recession, mm -hmm. didn't they? And you took us forward in a way that said, allowed us to see, I thought, two important things. One was that people were seeing, not necessarily the internet, but forms of communication mm -hmm. at a technological level as the future for the first world or the global world. And secondly, that whilst that dependence on communications has been a complete disaster for the vast majority of people, part of the deindustrialization of the United States in our case, it actually has proven extremely profitable for communications people. I mean, the, the numbers you gave us last night about the cash in hand or cash available as opposed to bank loans, the way every other business operates, right. on the part of everything from, from Microsoft to Netflix was quite extraordinary. Uh, it's not clear that the recession has been any kind of recession or depression for many of these companies, most of them though emergent ones, right. rather than the ones that Daniel Bell and Spigner Brzezinski and Ethel de Solapool and so on were rabbiting on about yeah, 40 yeah. years ago. Well, I mean, some of those older companies are doing well by conventional standards, you know. I mean, one wouldn't say, well, let's exempt News Corporation because of its uh, current travails, but... Um, you know, the, the Disney company is doing okay. Um, the, uh, I believe, uh, Viacom is doing okay. Uh, they're not, they're, they're not dying companies by a long shot. Uh, but, but the um, the vast qual uh, quantity of profits has been siphoned off into these new digital. Corporations, notably Apple, and I, I don't, I can't speak for the veracity of the statistic, but I've seen a statistic that says Apple is currently uh, siphoning off no less than 80 percent of all of the profit in the smartphone industry is going to Apple. Wow. So, I mean, that's that's what underlies, even if the statistic is shaky and it comes from some consultancy. Um, even if this statistic is shaky, that, that is an indication of where that $100 billion stash is coming from. But can I uh, wax a little bit on this? Please do. Uh, because there are many, many interesting dimensions of this. And um, one of them is there's nothing unusual about there being lead-edge industries. Even during the Great Depression of the 1930s, there were industries that made out relatively well. Petroleum, tobacco, there were a couple of other industries. We wouldn't endow them necessarily, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis aside, with the sense of, uh, uh, of, of uh, portentous possibility and uh, social transformation that is uh, imbuing digital communications today. Uh, but they did take more than their share of profits, and they're relatively robust companies through the Great Depression, and that's something that a, an economic historian that I know, Michael Bernstein, uh, has written on in a book on the Great Depression many years ago. Um, so that's one point. We wouldn't say this is atypical. It may be unusual in its extent or degree, but the, 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 the fact of there being lead-edge industries is not um, 
unusual. What's, what's interesting beyond that, though, is that even in communications broadly across its range, there is incredible uh, disparity and, uh, and even, uh, at some points, difficulty in terms of the, the flows, the, uh, the hordes on the one hand and the need for investment resources on the other. So, I mean, where you really, really need uh, if they're going to continue with the current project of rebuilding around communications, where they really need vast pools of capital is in telecommunications. And, and the telecom companies have been very effectively uh, contained in um, their involvements with uh, the most high-profit parts of the system. So, I mean, where we get a foretaste of this is in the debates over net neutrality, where um, we think of it as being about the uh, uh, availability of uh, politicized speech from uh, the sides, from the margins, from the left in particular. Um, and that's right, that's good. But the other side to it is that the telecom companies want to change the terms of trade with the digital companies, Google and Facebook and so forth, so and Apple, so that they make more of the money. I mean, every time Apple uh, sells one of its phones, a telephone company is having to give Apple money to, to, to subsidize it. Right. And of course, they're the ones who are laying out the networks. They're the ones who are putting out them. all the cost and paying first world dollars, not third world dollars, to have their hardware installed. Yes. You know, these are not yes. phones. These yes. are towers and cables. Yes. Fiber optic cables. And so I'm, I'm not trying to say we should all feel uh, you know, sorry <laughs> for the sorry telecom for AT companies. You know, no, no, I'm not. But I think it's a very interesting fact that there is yeah. this there is this disequilibration. There's this imbalance yeah. Yeah. between the two entities, and I expect that there will be growing friction and growing efforts to rebalance on terms that are more favorable to these gigantic network operators. In Europe, that's already happening. Well, Apple, of course, doesn't like playing kindly with others. Uh, it's not a very good team player in lots of ways. We've seen that. So we can anticipate more intra-class struggle of yes. that kind, I think. But it's interesting because the one we're conventionally told about is the struggle between so-called content providers uh, and the rest. In other words, it's Hollywood and, in the United States, it's Hollywood and the big television networks versus the internet. That's the opposition we're given, the one that Congress talks about, the one that the Motion Picture Association of America talks about. Well, that's real. I mean, there are areas of real um, friction, again, over the terms of trade between these two groups. But uh, I think that, uh, as I was saying yesterday briefly anyway, there uh, are likely to be growing forms of assimilation between those two, uh, I think, in order to serve both of their interests. And you know, I mean, companies that can't do each other in are going to find ways of making peace. When, when in the old days that uh, I I guess increasingly uniquely remembered because it's longer and longer ago. <laughs> um, the, um, the it was always put in the in the period of um, like the Nora Mink report in France or but Daniel Bell's uh, forecast here in the early 70s um, that the two major titans of the emerging U.S. centric information age were going to be IBM and AT&T. Those were the two titans. Now. You know, both of those companies are still very large companies, but nobody today would argue that those are the two dominant players. What's worth remembering uh, in light of your concern in this question is 
AT&T and IBM were each other's biggest customers. And so there, even in that uh, context, was a need to qualify the kind of anthropomorphized idea that these companies are occupying separate corners of the ring and there's going to be a knockdown fight until one of them wins. That's not the way it that, that can't happen. Interestingly enough, though, if we binarize it into IBM and AT&T, of course, nowadays, IBM has transformed itself much more than AT&T has. AT&T is essentially still a carrier of information. IBM is now basically a consultancy service. Um, but if you think about that original binary, in a way it still holds. Uh, you know, there is still the question of the carrier and the question of, you know, what is carried. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that division doesn't go away. Oh, no. I, I mean, and, and one of the problems, I, I don't know how parochial to be about, uh, say, communications or media studies and whether that's any part of our uh, need in this particular discussion, but... The, uh, the carriers uh, are very typically discounted by people that study communications, except a hardy band of engineers and economists and lawyers who actually have no or very little social interest yeah. or a cultural understanding. So uh, the problem You're is not talking about the Federal Communications Commission yeah. by any chance, though. <laughs> so, I mean, it's really a problem because we need to be able to include that vast capital-intensive infrastructure as an act of um, forming and reforming part of the landscape on which all of these other phenomena are also changing and taking shape. Uh, so I, I, I mean that's where I feel I can make some a contribution. Continuing uh, speaking of parochialism, so the <laughs> listenership to this is it's 50 countries uh, normally in a given week but probably 50% of the listeners are here in the United States so often I, one tries to contextualize things, even though everybody around the world knows something about the U.S. Yes. and something about its media and communications system. But I, I know you've done a lot of work internationally. I mean, you mentioned giving this uh, digital depression talk in Brazil. Uh, you've published uh, some work on China in the last few years and digital labor and so on. Um, one of the things that stood out for me last night in your address, and it was only an aside really, well not an aside, it was in the peroration perhaps, but it wasn't something you developed at great length, was that if you look at you know, the really capital intensive and really influential owners of intellectual property in the communications area, well I'm very sorry, but you know, it's not China and it's not India. And it really is the conventional colonial powers of the 19th century, especially the British to a certain extent, the French, and of course most of all our own great nation where we proudly sit today. Yes. And I wondered if you could globalize your remarks a bit and, and uh, tell us what you see in terms of what many of us think of as the crumbling American empire. Well, I mean, at, at, at a certain level this is a very profound issue or a set of issues because it gets to questions of uh, national state power as an embodiment uh, of, um, uh, of a class interest as opposed to whether the class interest is morphing towards a transnational uh, structure. And so I'll maybe we'll get back into that question, but that's in what you just asked me, and it's therefore really warranting, uh, I think, deep and empirically uh, based uh, analysis. But 
In terms of the, the more immediate issues, yes, I mean, there's absolutely no question that um, the, uh, let's say, soft power dimensions of uh, uh, there was... Uh, Joe Nye's embarrassingly penile metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah that's... Um, that's still very much with us, and uh, and yet, I mean, one sees even in that area efforts to um, to contend. Uh, so uh, China has set up uh, a broadcast operation in Washington D.C. that's doing, I believe, six hours of uh, news a day now from Washington D.C. This is China Central Television. This is, I mean, this is really something new that that could uh, be happening. I looked at uh, my paper of choice is the Financial Times these days. Um, Whose official title is the FT. It's known the, by the working class as the Financial Times. Okay, yeah, well, I'm sometimes not clear on my own class identity, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, at any rate, uh, the, uh, the, um, the FT, um, I open it up one day, and in the middle of it, there's a, an insert from China Daily. So it's you know eight page uh, of insert where they're doing their own soft power. So I mean I think this is hardly to say that China is on par with the United States. Far from it. It's more that they see a need to do at least some modest efforts at counterbalancing the environment that um, otherwise is uh, dominated by American products. And that actually gives a flavor to some of their very successful efforts to reserve the national market of China for Chinese capital. Uh, what's, what's really uh, significant, it seems to me, um, about that is that France couldn't do it in uh, the heyday of uh, the post-World War II decades. Uh, European countries have repeatedly been unable, uh, and to some extent, I suppose, unwilling to do what it takes to create a significant uh, competitor to American capital in uh, culture and communications. Um, I'm thinking here of the Noral Mink report again, trying to say, can we get a, uh, somebody to go up against IBM from Europe? Uh, I'm thinking of today's digital libraries um, initiatives, where the, the Europeana effort is there, but I mean, it's very much defensive against Google and so forth. Um, China's doing this. So the, the ability to reserve the national market uh, on uh, much more favorable terms for national capital is undeniably present across all of the new media and the telecommunications industry uh, in China. So what that will mean going forward is an open question. The significant point is that in a period of sustained depression and low growth in the traditional wealthy areas, the growth in China, even if it slows, uh, is all the more critical for uh, units of capital all over the world. And if China is able to continue to reserve that area, particularly in the all-important field of communications, uh, that will be an increasingly important factor strategically. So these are just considerations yeah, that come sure. into my mind as sure, you ask me. Sure. Uh, one of the things you talked to us about last night was the very important role of military spending in the hegemony of U.S. communications. And this is true, by the way, at the level of Hollywood as well, but most spectacularly, of course, when it comes to everything from Motorola and the way it managed to survive as a, an appalling telephone, um, through to, the, obviously, the origins of the Internet itself. Uh, one of the arguments made by China skeptics is that until and unless there is a more open environment for the expression of ideas, 
the Chinese are not going to be in a position to develop rival, really rivalrous relations with the United States and these more traditional areas of wealth when it comes to creating new cultural formats that are appealing across the globe and creating new technologies. Another answer might be it depends how much of their military budget they put behind doing that or what their forms of corporate welfare are. Our corporate welfare goes through guns and butter. Uh, their corporate welfare may go another way. Well, that's true. I, I mean, I'm not enough of an expert on the Chinese um, military apparatus to have a good answer to you, but I do know that in one highly cited example, which is the Huawei company, which is a rival of Cisco in creating what in the business press is referred to as um, the internet plumbing, the routers, and, um, other equipment that are um, what the internet runs through and on. Um, Huawei is being increasingly successful, not only in China but around the world, and is said to be uh, still, although they continue to deny it, linked with the Chinese military apparatus. I mean, I would presume it is for the same reason that AT&T and Verizon, and for that matter, Google, are in the United States. Um, you know, as you just said, I mean, it's it's a structural uh, necessity that works both ways. There's some friction in it, but it's important. So I would expect that to be true in China. Now, in terms of the the more interesting question you're asking about to me is the, the, the culture uh, side of it, the, uh, the ability to, f to create forms of, uh, of culture and of uh, representation that will be more effective in, uh, as trade, traded commodities. Um, that's another very, very big area, but I would expect to see, for the very reason that you're identifying, growing points of relationship between uh, Chinese capital and U.S. content companies. Uh, and that there would be, I mean, and again, we have some historical basis for thinking about this. Um, it's a very different one, and it's not to reduce the two to one another, because it's, it's not uh, possible to do that. But, you know, I mean, as you know as well as anyone, uh, the previous dominant global power was Britain. And part of the ascent of the United States was about rejiggering the relationship with Britain. And one of the things that I'm struck by in looking at that history is the, the successful nature, even though you know, there were certainly uh, casualties, uh, heads rolled, all kinds of bruising battles over uh, the decolonization process, the terms on which the U.S. would be able to get into the old British Empire. Those kinds of things were not just you know, matters of nice negotiation. But um, nevertheless, there was uh, increasingly coordination between those two countries, and indeed it's still true today. I mean, this is the, the basic relationship as we're continually told about uh, that, that supports uh, something or other, I guess, uh, basically. Imperialism, I think. World domination. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but at any rate, um, so, but my point is that there were ways of pooling uh, both political power and capital uh, and that uh, would look to, in some loose sense, of, uh, a template or model that one might begin to see between U.S. and China. I mean, I think the big problem, and then I'll shut up and get your word in edgewise, but I think the big problem from the point of view of the leadership, both in China and the United States, is how do they figure out, given all of the other difficult issues, to work together? I mean, they want to work together. They want to work together. The problem is there's all this other stuff that keeps making it difficult to do it. Uh, 
and so that's that's how I would it. Yeah, and some of those things are geopolitical, thinking about the status of Taiwan, for example, thinking about the Japanese, because when you said there's a model from the past we can think about, another possibility, of course, is thinking about Japan and the United States in the late 1980s, at which point, however madly, there were fears, especially up here in the Pacific Northwest because of a particular baseball team, that the Japanese are coming, the Japanese are coming. Uh, take water, water motion picture studio, uh, there's still Japanese money in motion pictures. They've worked out that they're going to be very silent investors because basically, you know, members of the tribe in Hollywood got them. Uh -huh. <laughs> and and uh, their attempts to impose Japanese managerial systems didn't last long. Now, we know that that threat or opportunity for Japanese capital subsided in part with the lingering recession, really, 20 years now. Yes, they've been going through it. Two last decades. No sign of getting out of it. Uh, we know that that didn't happen and was probably never likely to. But the hysteria on the part of the public about it was almost more intense than the hysteria we sometimes see about China today. Because China today represents still, for many people, the place where beautiful things that we really like get made at prices that we can afford. Yeah. On the other hand, I, mean, I think there is a, a growing virulence in the uh, let's bash China movement in this country, um, which uh, runs uh, I mean, really, really big risks, it seems to me, politically for well, people in both countries, but here uh, in the United States in particular, where um, there's, there's a real need for finding points of lateral contact with Chinese people, ordinary people, so as to constitute uh, some different kind of bond than the um, long-standing uh, othering, not a word I often use, um, of... Um, Dan's going coming over all cultural here. It's because, <laughs> it's because it's before eight in the morning. Yeah, yeah, you never know what will happen. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I mean, I, I think that that's a really critical thing. And, and, um, and there is a lot more exchange going on, but it's mediated by tourism, it's mediated by consumption. It's, it's not the, um, the sort of uh, engagement that one would want to see. On the other hand, I mean, you know, we're, we're getting a discussion of the supply chain for the Apple um, products now. And that does involve some lateral relationships between trade unionists and uh, uh, working people in China and NGOs in a couple of brave cases uh, and people on this side. Right. Um, so Where consumers see themselves as workers, not yeah. only as yeah. purchasers of products. Uh, I think the other thing is, of course, that the Chinese diaspora is so deep and so wide that its presence in American life is actually much greater than people often recognize, just as its presence in many parts of the world is deeper than people recognize and at a very conventional level, not at this complex level. The other thing is in terms of the two major political parties, or as Warren Beatty once called them, the two halves of the accountancy profession that we call political parties in the United States, <laughs> they both have m massive debts in every sense of the term to different fractions of finance capital locally. And those fractions of finance capital, both of them, whether it's the west side of Manhattan or the east side of Manhattan, and that depends, yeah, you've only got a, they're yeah. the two that fund the parties, yeah, basically, yeah, along yeah. with some people in Hollywood and maybe a few up here. Uh, those fractions are massively indebted to the Chinese in lots of ways. And, and whatever else they may be, they're generally not bigots. They can't afford to be. Right. 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 It's not in the system. Well, I mean, capital has been a language of international activity for centuries, and uh, so today. Uh, so I agree with you.
So getting back to the class issue that you mentioned, I wonder if, if you could tell us a bit more about that, about class politics today and, and their relationship to communications. Like Toby, you asked such strong, good questions. Um, well, I mean, I'm afraid I'll end up sounding evasive. I don't mean to, but I mean, I think in in, cla in, in, in the United States context, class politics is real. Uh, it exists now, and yet, in an electoral sense, uh, it is um, uh, ever carefully modulated and. Uh, repressed and channeled and redirected. So um, the key point from my perspective on this, uh, have you, uh, are you familiar with the book by Jefferson Cowie um, that came out uh, a year or so ago uh, called uh, Staying Alive? Uh, no, I know the one on, you know, RC. Capital Move. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he has another book that's gotten quite uh, favorable reviews, and it's about the transition from uh, the 70s. Uh, in, across its range, including uh, all kinds of cultural forms, as well as any kind of uh, more strictly trade union or, or familiar trappings of class identity. Um, and his his argument uh, is that the uh, well, the, the more robust forms of class uh, politics that existed around the old Democratic Party. Uh, were both deliberately attacked, successfully so, as a result of the Kevin Phillips and related strategists of the Republicans, but also to an extent imploded from within uh, as the uh, uh, claims made on the Democratic uh, Party uh, by expanding uh, non-white male groups uh, proved uh, unassimilable mm. by the leadership of, uh, of the party. And um, so what we have is a much more um, fragmented kind of class politics today where it's much more, it seems to me, extensively modulated by various forms of, uh, of communication and cultural practice. Uh, the, the trade union is arguably, I think Raymond Williams said this in the British context, the um, the singular and, in many respects, crucial working-class institution. Uh, and uh, in the United States today, what is it, six percent of the private sector workforce has trade unions. So, I mean, it's not uh, that significant of a factor. One can look for a resurgence of that, and I would be in favor of doing that. One can see evidence of it. But there will be new forms, and there need to be new forms of institutional practice. I'm not prepared to say that they should collapse down to the multitude, uh, to, to just the free-form uh, self-activity of lots of people who have subjectivity. Uh, I, I don't find that a persuasive... I mean, if that's what we're counting on, then heaven help us. Uh, we need more, uh, as Mike Davis has recently written, uh, uh, deep as opposed to horizontal forms of uh, organization and uh, agenda setting and, uh, and political self-activity. So where will that uh, come from? Well, I mean, things are happening here with this depression. You know, we haven't seen the level of... Um, opposition and of uh, outbreak that has been occurring in the United States in a variety of places 
um, the Zuccotti Park for sure, you know, with uh, that uh, whole stream of activities, but also um, in Madison. And uh, when the events were happening in Madison around the, the uh, governor's efforts to uh, attack the standard of living there uh, a year or so ago, uh, one of the things that may not have been as apparent, apparent is there were other things going on in other Midwestern states. I mean, in Illinois, we were seeing people coming across the border from Indiana because if the Democrats could get across the border into Illinois, then they wouldn't be part of a quorum, and so they would be able to prevent similar kinds of actions in Indiana. And I heard a trade unionist in that context say that the Midwest was on fire. Now, you know, okay, for now, it doesn't look that way. But I think that the level of, um, of potentially mobilizable uh, anger in the United States is much deeper than, at any rate, the Democratic Party understands. The Republican Party, I think, understands it, which is what's um, frightening on that side. But, and I'm, I'm not personally either a Democrat or a Republican, so I'm not trying to steer us towards the Democratic Party. But uh, I think that... Uh, When we find a group, an organizational form, and some leaders, and you know, the working class in the United States is always uh, creating leaders. We just don't know their names because they're not part of the authorized history of anything. Um, but when we find some leaders, you know, when's the next Gene Debs going to come around? Uh, he was an authentic American type radical. Um, who knows? But I think that the tinder now is is there, and I think things could happen very quickly. So I, that's not a good enough answer for you, but at least it's 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 um, constituents of an answer. No, that's very helpful. I think it points to the necessity for some institutions. I did a couple of podcasts with people involved in Occupy Wall Street uh -huh. when they were visiting Mexico, and actually when I was living there last year, and uh -huh. they went to Occupy Coyoacan and occupy uh, the Zócalo there in downtown Mexico City. And when I asked them about Occupy Wall Street, uh, this was Andrew Ross and Maggie Gray, and also Occupy Student Debt, they told me that uh, when it came to structure and organization, you know, they, there was this very loose organization. But when I asked who was in it, who the people were, they said, well, we really don't know. And at one level, that seems to me essential and very beneficial. At another, not so much. Well, we need sustained forms of action. We need to be able to recognize that we're in institutional antagonisms that endure. And if they endure, then we need to be endure along with them yeah. and figure out how to respond to things that come at, come at us. Um, but I have to say that, you know, the way Occupy sees the headlines in this country and in others too, is remarkable because I really felt as though the absurd Tea Party, uh, the ultimate in the astroturf or faux grassroots organization, if there was one, was the only social movement that got it was going to get any media attention the rest of my life. In, in this I completely agree. I mean, Occupy was incredibly successful in getting the Tea Party off the front page, off of the media discourse, and even beyond that, in reinserting the issue of inequality into the center of American politics. And I think that was a critical achievement. It's not given uh, the uh, 
recognition that it very much requires. And so I'm not in any way trying to say that Occupy's laterality uh, is um, was in, inadequate or insufficient for doing that. But we need to go beyond that. We need to be able to continue to press um, the institutions because the basic policies that are coming at us are going in the wrong direction. They're actively pyramiding um, against uh, any kind of um, adequate standard of living for the people of this country. You can take any, uh, I mean, if there's a bus system left in the city of your choice, get on it and see what you see. You know, and what you see is a level of, um, of poverty that uh, is still, to my eyes, shocking. I mean, it looks to me like it, I remember it being in Brooklyn, New York in, in the 50s. And Brooklyn, New York, and, and I'm talking about areas of Brooklyn, Bedford-Stuyvesant and so forth, where it was really not a good situation. Today, it feels like that all over this country. Um, no, crumbling infrastructure. I, I live in downtown Los Angeles. I take the bus a lot. Uh, there are three different bus systems in Los Angeles, two on the west side, uh, Culver City and Santa Monica, and one that's universal, the metro. Well, in terms of the qual physical quality of the bus ride, the difference between being on a west side bus and an anywhere else bus is unbelievable. Uh -huh. It's unbelievable. You would think these were private companies, <laughs> you know, one of which was well capitalized, two of which were well capitalized and one of which was not. That's great. Uh, so what happens is the working class that comes to the west side to do the bidding of people like me, half their ride is grotesque. Then once they get to the west side and they get to the bus interchange and move on to the Culver City Line or Santa yeah. Monica Line, <laughs> it's quite luxurious. It's all hunky-dory. <laughs> <laughs> In any event, Dan, we've got about 20 minutes left. I wondered if we could go, as they say in baseball, back, 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 back. Sure. Uh, and to think about some of your other works. And I'd love to start with what I think is your most recent book, How to Think About Information. Yes. Uh, a sort of one of those titles that you, you think might be, you know, with raised letters and says, Dantula, PhD, how to think about information. <laughs> and there it is in front of the bookstore. But it's not really business for dummies. No. I think it's a, a fantastic book. It's, it's my favourite among your books, I have to say. And I wondered if you could just tell us the answer. Well, the, the thing that I... Schiller for dummies. <laughs> the thing I would preface it with is that I, uh, the big question when I was titling that book is whether to put a question mark at the end of it. And, and it, was, it was intended really to have that quality because I think um, a part of any answer that I would want to recognize is open-ended. Um, we will continue to give answers to that question, we being the global population, um, in a... Uh, in a variety of uh, often uh, opaque or uh, complicated kinds of ways. But my uh, structuring principle for thinking about it, for thinking about information, is both historical and political economic. Um, what has happened matters enormously to what we take to be normal and natural in the times that we live. And it's very um, often buried so that one doesn't always know exactly how the past is giving us the thing we take to be uh, this uh, air that we breathe in, in the present in cultural and political economic terms. Um, it's something that has uh, is widely remembered, um, associated with the eminent uh, English historian Edward Thompson, the enormous condescension of posterity was the phrase that he used. Um, 
So history is crucial. And what kind of history matters? I mean, we're not talking here about the history of presidential administrations necessarily. We're talking about the history um, of um, um, the different forms and practices and institutions that create what I call a system of information provision. For me, there are systems of information provision. These include, and this is why I use the word information, uh, culture and big chunks of uh, biology as well. Uh, the word information and the word culture have very uh, difficult relationships. And when we're on the information side of it, we think we're in the realm of fact. We're in the realm of science. We're in the realm of data, you know, when we say information. And a lot of us, as an occupational um, sort of uh, perk are able to say, oh yes, you know, in informational terms, and suddenly we're vested with the raiment of the computer industry, you know, we're able to talk that way. On the culture side, it's all about expression and representation and experience and consciousness, and it's all that rich, messy stuff. The problem is that there are vast areas of overlap between the two. So which way do we go? Uh, the difficulty there is, of course, that we don't want to be pushed in either direction exclusively. We want to look for a new kind of fusion, a new kind of conceptualization. I think it's, it's after all that's come over all the decades, it is absolutely unacceptable not to have at the center some notion of culture that gets at uh, the experience, the consciousness, the, uh, the understandings, the self-understandings of ordinary people. We must have that. It has to be given central uh, weight. We also need some sense of, on the informational side, the different uh, pieces of a system of provision that actually take some kind of institutional or semi-institutional form. Everything from libraries on the uh, public side to telecom networks uh, on the sort of hardware infrastructure side. Um, and we need to put these things together so that we have a way of understanding them in an unfolding historical way that can be brought to bear on changing the world. So that's a lot, you know, but that's the kind of stuff that's gestured at in that book. Mm. Um, what would have been different if it had been how to think about culture? Well, a lot of people have written really good stuff on that that I like a lot, uh, and so I didn't feel as much of a need to work from that end. Uh, because I more or less take over. I mean, look, there are huge unresolved questions here, of course. It's not like, you know, okay, we've got culture down and we understand. Uh, but um, there, there's also an awful lot of good thinking. There's been sustained effort on the cultural side. For me, somebody who's always been fundamental and still is, is Raymond Williams. A very interesting fact is how uh, Raymond Williams has been turned into a non-entity in um, at least the, uh, the U.S. side of the discourse. My graduate students have never heard of Raymond Williams, um, which is, you know, a, a tragedy. Uh, he came as far as I think it was possible to come in uh, thinking about the difficult questions of culture and class and capital uh, in uh, the era in which he, he lived. Um, he was faulted for paying insufficient attention to gender and race. I think that's a fair criticism. 
I also think that the uh, response to that set of criticisms would not begin by saying, okay, we don't need Raymond Williams. The response would be to say, how do we do better? How do we build? How do we connect? Culture is an act of building. It's an act of building. If we start from the idea of simple destruction, the sort of Nathaniel West version of culture, where it's just, let's, let's let it burn. I mean, there's a great impulse to that, and I have it in me too. You know, let the, this, this culture that we are uh, forced to endure with all its uh, insipidity, all of its, uh, you know, absolute banality, all of its evil, um, is, uh, it's worthy of being put onto the uh, dung heap of history. Um, but that doesn't really get us anywhere because in the actual lives of people, uh, the culture isn't something that can be thought of like that. So it's indispensable, and we need to work from that. On the information side, I think I've indicated we have um, a need to insist, and I'll, I'll come to a close on this in a second, that the people who are the bearers of culture, meaning all of us, are also some parts of it. The people who create the information institutions and the information uh, capacities. And so much of the time, that understanding is seemingly inaccessible. It's off limits. So I'm in the US context with telecommunications. I teach on telecommunications. Invariably, when I teach courses on telecommunications um, in a communications department, the gender mix of undergraduate majors in most communications departments is verging on two to one women to men. When I teach telecommunications courses, it's reversed. It's all men. Why? Well, what makes that really uh, creepy and telling is that women are absolutely at the center of the construction of the American telecommunications industry. I mean, the labor of operators for, for decades was at the very center of it. And yet, somehow, we live in a world where women communications students, and I'm not faulting them for this, I'm just saying it's an observed fact, feel that this is maybe too technical, maybe too male, maybe too computery. It's not um, part of it. So we need to look for ways of um, changing that. Jumping back a decade, I know you did some other work in between uh, from How to Think About Information. I'm remembering your book, which I saw a copy of yesterday, which I once bought in a bookstore for a buck. Good, good value, I'm sure. <laughs> Horace Nuka was telling me yesterday, he, he, he found a book of his, uh, his first book from 74 on television in Powell's, the great bookstore here in Portland, and it was... Uh, it was $2.95 today, and it said $2.50 on the cover from 1974. <laughs> Good for him. My, uh, let's jump back to Theorizing Communication, uh, a wonderful book. I think a book that didn't quite have its day. It didn't quite have the impact that it should have, in my view. I see that book, at least in part, as an attempt to bring together the cultural studies and communication studies parts. Yes. Is that what you were, and certainly Raymond Williams being a kind of Aminos Grise or a presiding figure? Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I, that was a book which it took me a really long time to write that book, about uh, 10 years. And, um, but it was a, an effort to come to grips with the, um, uh, 
well, the, the kind of academic canon in communications. And just saying, uh, if I'm going to really try to assimilate as deeply as I'm able to uh, what this can tell us in some creative ways that might be useful now, what would I emphasize? And the thing that came through as the organizing principle of the book, but only in the final drafts. I mean, I went through several drafts in which this wasn't yet there. Um, the organizing principle became the distance between acts of communication and acts of labor. So that labor was seen as, in a way, the definitional other of communication. Um, and uh, I find that to be a very, still now, generative uh, relationship. Uh, we, we really, uh, in communications, tend to think of what we're doing as somehow in opposition to an older structure that foregrounds labor. And once again, what we need to do is to bring them together and to think about how they work together. And Toby, I mean, your own work has been central, it seems to me, in helping us along in that way. So, I mean, there's every... Uh, area to look at, and uh, Vince, Vincent Mosco does work, Kathy McKercher does work, um, Paula Chakravarti, Paula Chakravarti does work, who you work with. yes, absolutely, uh, Zhao, with whom you do Zhao, work. Yeah. There, there, there are a number of people doing really, really important work here, uh, but we're still fighting against, and this is why I think, aside from its uh, dense opacity, um, of that work that you're asking me about, uh, about which I guess I couldn't do anything. Um, <laughs> the, um, we're fighting against the grain. I mean, we're, we're, it is still the case that when we go to communications, we're talking about things like content or uh, programming as if too much of the time uh, those things exist free of the creators of, of the content. Right. And so Theorizing Communication is the name of this book that I think it was Oxford yes. brought out in 96. It's a wonderful book and I really want people to give it the attention that I think it deserves and I don't think it's really received. Uh, I occasionally review articles, for example, for journals with titles like Communication Theory. And it's just staggering to me that these works can be considered theoretical. But it's also staggering to me when I look at journals like that as to what counts as knowledge. Um, I mean, the utter banality, the triviality of cap-doffing in the direction of nobodies and nothing yeah. uh, is appalling. Yeah, it, 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 um, you can get very depressed about this. Um, I, I think um, the other side of it is that there's more question, there's more activity, there's more effort to say let's let's think about some new things or let's think about old things in a better uh, and more radical way today than uh, than I can recollect um, so I'm I'm, um, I'm hopeful that that will carry us uh, forward but I think in I mean insofar as the academic field of communications is concerned I think there's a, a really grave identity crisis from the official sites of it. They don't know any longer. They don't have television violence to organize things around so much. I mean, you know, who cares? After CSI, who need, you know, what, what else is there? You know, no more moral panic. I mean, everybody's seen everything. Um, and uh, so it's, it's difficult for them to seize on an issue. And by the same token, the people who are successful are lawyers. I mean, the, the sort of reform current of lawyers, uh, often at Ivy League institutions, who have found careers and also uh, lots of interesting insights, 
uh, and some meaningful policy positions on things that are really centrally located in the new communications. Right, is but they've never read anything we do and nor no. need they because we have nothing to offer. Well, I don't know if I'd say it that strongly. I mean, there are things that I think they should read. Um, yes, I'm, but sorry, when I was saying we then, I didn't mean the sort of field that we're discussing yes, yes, today yes, in terms yes, yes, of the yes, work yes. that you do. I'm thinking of or mainstream communications. Oh, you're and this right, is, right. I think, what our friend and, yeah. and colleague Bob McChesney yes. uh, alluded to a few years ago when he successfully yes. did some national organizing around the absolute paucity of contribution yes. to the debate on communications from within communications. No, that's networks. absolutely true. I mean, we've really advocated, and uh, it's, uh, when I say we, I don't mean you and I, but because I don't think we have. And in fact, I think, as I said, some of our possibilities are greater. But the mainstream of the field is, is casting about yeah. more or yeah. less aimlessly for an identity. No, that's interesting. One of the things that fascinates me is that an, a term that used to send students either running for the hills or <laughs> crawling into sleep was intellectual property or copyright. Nowadays, I find that students are actually interested in this, and it is on the front pages. Mm -hmm. These things that used to be arcane, um, people like you and me were <laughs> fixated on <laughs> in mad ways, are actually now really part of public discourse. When I say to students, you know, how many of you play online games, or how many of you uh, participate in Showtime or HBO yes, discussion yes, yes. groups on boxing? Uh, do you know what an end-user license agreement is? And how do you feel about the fact that you pay money to an organization that then requires you to sign away every idea you have <laughs> yeah. to them? Yeah. And is there something wrong with this picture? People really begin to question property relations, given that that's happening at the same time as they are fetishizing the idea that information actually is free. Yes. Yes. And that you shouldn't have to pay for this stuff. So there are real contradictions there about basic, not just American, but popular understandings of ownership of property and the idea of information culture as things that should just be exchanged gratis. Yes, I mean, I think we're going to see more and more of these kinds of uh, conflicts, and that the, uh, as, uh, as a condition of that, there will be as indeed there already is, as you're saying, growing awareness of uh, things called intellectual property. I mean, the very term intellectual property is something that by rights we shouldn't use. Um, you know, it's not intellectual property. It's a, another form of talking about it would be culture. Um, uh, again, there is a slippage here, and there's a, a big public relations effort to call it property. 18th century England, they called it literary property. Uh, or they talked about copyrights, which gives it the actual legal form patents or whatever it, uh, the particular legal form would be. Uh, intellectual property generalizes it, uh, but, but acts as if its fundamental identity is property rather than something else. And I would contend with that, and I think it gets at the very thing you were just saying. Um, so yeah, and people do care. They also care, uh, I think, uh, enormously about privacy. Uh, and um, and they're connected. The problem I have, and I talked briefly about it yesterday, is that I don't think privacy is an, is an adequate uh, conceptual container for the range of things that are now being uh, restructured. Uh, privacy suggests that the issue is some sort of transgression against an individual, often an identified individual, whereas what's going on is a wholesale restructuring of uh, cultural apparatus uh, the system of information provision, choose which you like, uh, around the uh, the flows, the data trails, the behavioral act, uh, 
traces that, uh, that the whole population leaves. So it's not really just about privacy, it's about who gets to structure this particular uh, transition in the system of information provision. Privacy, nevertheless, you know, retains its political organizing significance, if you want, because people feel that it has this personal quality um, that gives them a link to the broader and also, in, here in the United States, uh, some listeners from elsewhere may not be aware that the implicit right to privacy in our Constitution is actually what makes abortion legal. Uh, for decades, a couple of decades, this worked quite well. Uh, it's now clear that what the Democrats should have done when they had clear majorities in both houses was enact this and then let it be challenged or not, but make sure that there was something giving the right to an abortion that Congress had clearly enacted without any dubiety. And then that would be a buttress to what has turned out to be a less than robust defense of women's reproductive rights. That's a very interesting point. Yeah. So, yeah, I think in a consumerist world, there's no doubt that the privacy element is a good one to run with, and also real. Yes. Uh, there's also the question of linking it to these broader structural issues yes. that I think you've just uh, laid out for us. Now, we've got just a five, three or four minutes left. I know you've got another meeting. I think we've got time for three or four. I wanted to go back to forwards and backwards, lastly, to another important book you wrote, in between theorising communication and how to think about information, namely digital capitalism. Yes. Uh, this is a phrase with which you're very associated. It's a, a well-known book. Uh, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the idea of digital capitalism. Well, we have no trouble typically uh, summoning up the figure of industrial capitalism. It's something that you know, we don't even think about. But at a certain point in the 19th century, in both Britain and the United States, it began to be uh, felt to be necessary by quite a few observers to think about the form of the society that was uh, boiling up in front of them around the dark satanic mills and the things that came after. Um, and the term um, industrialization, industrial society, and industrial capitalism appeared as a, a kind of necessary uh, descriptor. That's now so deeply embedded that we don't ever think about it. It's just something that we can summon up and say, well, you know, industry may be, manufacturing industry may be being offshored, but um, the reality of an industrialized capitalism um, has historical uh, anchors. What kind of capitalism do we live in? Uh, it's in the sense of suggesting something that uh, is emergent from industrialized capitalism that I tried to point to a digital capitalism. It's not to say that uh, the, the fundamental of uh, capitalism is in some way transcended or uh, uh, rendered uh, insignificant. It's rather to say that capitalism has always been uh, a, a changing, dynamic, and in some respects the most dynamic of political economies. And we need ways of discussing it and understanding it that are a little more historically specific um, to take note of the, the changes that palpably uh, exist. I mean, here in Portland, for example, every other store has software on the awning somewhere in the title. Um, and uh, this isn't even Silicon Valley. So um, 
we need ways of talking about that. And uh, digital capitalism was uh, intended in that sort of way with a uh, kind of implied contrast with industrialized capitalism. It's not to say that things are no longer industrialized. It's to say that they're industrialized to some extent through the digital. So in order to have, as I was saying yesterday, uh, you know, uh, supply chains that span a dozen countries, the networking features of that are uh, not paramount above the other kinds of uh, labor, the other kinds of uh, corporate business process, but they are indispensable, and they're not typically given the attention that they should be in terms of uh, pointing to what is emergent in our own time. So it's, I mean, that's kind of the, the basis. You know, it's no surprise you spend a bit of time in your life in California, because you really would be good at the elevator pitch, that <laughs> you are capable of giving wonderfully, wonderfully short, but also rich accounts of incredibly difficult ideas. Well, Dan Schiller, thank you very much for joining us in the pod, and I want to extract a promise from you, if I can, that when the digital depression comes out, as opposed to ending, you'll re-enter the pod and tell us about that very exciting book. I'd love to, Toby, and I'm in your debt for making this interview happen. <laughs> <laughs>